0: Welcome to Vision of Zion. The date today is Sunday, May 7th, 2023. I have with me on this podcast Sean White. Hello, Sean. Morning, Greg. Looking forward to this chapter. Actually, I'm looking forward to getting through this chapter because you promised that after (laughs) Isaiah eight that things would get better. Definitely, yeah, it's darkest before the morning, right? Before the dawn. So,
1: well, we have all these up, but it's like a roller coaster ride because he doesn't, he describes the dark side of things, then he goes to the light side of things and the dark side and back and forth.
0: (laughs) I can only imagine what that's like in a vision. Uh, the highs and the lows, we we get a sense of that with different prophets, but none more than Moses in the Pearl of Great Price, Moses chapter 1, where he just goes up and down and and he records every detail. It's very interesting to be looking over someone's shoulder while they're going through the ups and downs, but certainly Isaiah must have had the same type of experience.
1: Well, he's seeing at this time the greatest wickedness that the earth has ever seen and at the same time he's seeing the greatest righteousness that he's ever seen. And so... um mm-hmm. That's really hard to do, I think, for him as he's seeing this to go back and forth between t- seeing these people dividing and fighting and yet wonderful righteousness and great wickedness.
0: Well, the topic or theme of this chapter uh, in your notes is that Isaiah 8 is a warning to the people of what is about to happen right after the midpoint of the tribulation. Yes. And is it true that the tribulation period, many people have said that it's either exactly or roughly seven years?
1: That's true. Um, The first part is the first three and a half years is to test the saints, test God's children to see if they will hold true and faithful to all that they have been instructed to and taught all their lives and everything. And then that second Second seven, three and a half years is a period of time for them to get rid of the wicked, although there are many that are pulled out. I mean, right to the very end, we're pulling out righteous people that have been trapped
0: in or surrounded by wickedness. So it's a beautiful time period. And so, midpoint would be three and a half years, then, correct? right? All right. Let's read verses one and two from the Dead Sea Scrolls translation. Yahweh said to me, quote, take a large tablet and write on it with a man's pen. Another quote, for Meir Shalel Baz, and then close quote on that one, and I will take for myself faithful witnesses to testify, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. close quote.
1: As Isaiah wrote, he wanted his message to be received by everyone. He brought trustworthy, reliable witnesses, such as Uriah and Zechariah. These were witnesses, were ones that everyone respected. God wanted to let everyone know what was about to happen, which, being interpreted, Mahar, Shelah, uh, Hajbej, hasten the plunder, hurry the spoil, was the proclamation to the house of Israel, warning them of about what was to happen. We will see this talked about in more detail in later chapters in the future we'll see this time period as a servant isaiah is describing standing up and his identity being revealed to the whole world because it has been hidden for the first three and a half years and most people won't know it the righteous will definitely notice it at the three and a half year point and it will come to them very strongly. The two earthly trusted men that stand and bear witness to this, to those that can truly hear God, actually, I've in this scene, I have seen Elohim and Jesus standing there with him. But there will be also two, like, apostles or leaders, one maybe of Israel and one of uh, the apostles that we know today standing with him bearing record, but um, to those that can hear God's voice and are truly attuned, um, I think this scene is somewhat uh, elaborated a little bit in visions of glory as he stands up at the pulpit there,
0: but it will be a really special time. All right, let's go to verses 3 and 4. And by the way, we're going to try this different method than the first podcast about Isaiah where I'm going to go through the verses, allow Sean to... Uh, provide his interpretation and then i'm going to follow up with the discussion about different points that stand out to me as we go so these are verses three and four i went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son then yahweh said to me quote call his name Marshalal hashbaz for before the child knows how to call his father and his mother the riches of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria. Close quote.
1: Isaiah and his wife, the prophetess, had conceived a son, and God told him before the child could say mother or father, all the wealth of their people would be taken by the king of Assyria. This shows how fast the wealth of both kingdoms of Israel would be taken away. If we think about that today, I wish I knew how old uh, Isaiah's wife was because she's the prophetess here and they bear a son. And I imagine that it was a little bit of a shock and things to the people. But during this time period, um, we think before he can say father, mother, I have grandkids starting to say that at two years old and so. So in less than two years time period, um we can see all the wealth being taken away uh, very, very suddenly.
0: And uh, I think we'll see this in the future. All right. Let's go to verses 5 through 8. Yahweh spoke to me yet again, saying, quote, because his people have refused the waters of Shiloh that go softly and rejoice in Razin and Ramaliah's son. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord Yahweh brings upon them the mighty floodwaters of the river, The king of Assyria and all his glory. It will come up over all its channels and go over all its banks. It will sweep onward into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck and the stretching out of its wings, the width of your land, Emmanuel. Waters of Shiloh. This
1: is the spring of water that bubbles up near Jerusalem. This is the water that filled the pool of Shalom, where Jesus told the blind man to go and wash, and he would see. It is the water source where Jesus came and pronounced, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So it's very sacred. It's very soothing and calming. So we're seeing a contrast here from the waters of Shiloh and the rejoicing to this contrast. So as we discussed in chapter 7, resin and Ramallah's son, with Pekah, were evil and plotted to take away the independence of the Ephraimites. For us today, he is saying, for all of you who have refused to know Christ and supported in taking away your country's agency or others' agency, I will allow the king of Assyria to invade you. The king of Assyria will come upon your land as a flood does unexpectedly. There will be nowhere to for the unrepentant to hide it will sweep outward to judah indicating the evasion of israel will happen right after the evasion of america by saying emmanuel which is to say god is with us indicates the king of syria is given power by god to invade the israelites that have not turned their hearts and minds to god
0: very good let's go to verses 9 and 10. Make an uproar, you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Listen, all you from far countries, dress for battle and be shattered. Dress for battle and be shattered. Take counsel together, and it will be brought to nothing. Speak the word, and it will not stand, for God is with us, Emmanuel.
1: It's going to be a little bit conflicting to try to understand this. Even though American Israel will scream and holler, Over the invasion, there is nothing they can do. The pacts our nation has made with NATO and UN amount to nothing, because God has given power to the king of Assyria to humble his people. God is with us, is a statement by the king of Assyria. The protection God once gave to Israel and America is withdrawn, because they failed to serve God. They have broken their covenants and taken away the things they were taught and took them lightly they sinned against the greater light and knowledge just as the nephites had done the nephites were generally a more wholesome people than the lamanites but the nephites sinned against the greater light this is evidenced as alma prophesied to helaman yea and this because they shall dwindle in unbelief and fall into works of darkness and mischievousness and all manner of iniquities Yea, I say unto you, that because they shall sin against the greater light, greater light and knowledge. Alma 45.12 Let's
0: go to verses 11 and 12. For Yahweh thus spoke to me with a strong hand and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, quote, Don't say a conspiracy concerning all about which this people say a conspiracy. Neither fear their threats, nor be terrorized.
1: God is very firm with Isaiah to separate from the whole of his people that believed this invasion was a conspiracy. He told Isaiah not to be fearful of the people's threats against Isaiah
0: for believing that God would do this. Verses 13 through 15. Yahweh of armies is who you must respect as holy. He is the one you must fear. He is the one you must dread. He will be a sanctuary. But, for both houses of Israel, he will be a stumbling block and a rock that makes them fall. For the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many will stumble over it, fall, be broken, be snared, and be captured.
1: Yahweh of armies is the right hand of God. He is the one whom you should respect, because God will give him power to protect the righteous and kill the wicked. To those that hear God's voice and live His commandments, Yahweh of armies will be your protector. But to those struggling to keep His commandments, He will be a stumbling block. If the people don't turn back to God, they will stumble and fall and be broken and snared and be taken into captivity by the king
0: of Assyria, which is the left hand of God. Okay, making more sense about Yahweh of armies. Let's go to verses 16 through 18. We're still, I think we're still quoting here. Wrap up the covenant and seal the law among my disciples. I will wait for Yahweh, who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children of Yahweh, excuse me. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are for a sign and for a wonder in Israel from Yahweh of armies, who dwells in Mount Zion.
1: There will be a time which we must rely upon our scriptures and our testimonies. This ties into Revelation 12. And the woman, being the church of God, I'm adding that, led into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God, and they sh- should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days, according to the Joseph Smith translation. Hiding his face from the house of Jacob, is representing hiding his face from those who have not developed a personal relationship with God. They have not used the atonement that Christ offered. This is done to humble the people and get them truly to seek the Savior. Behold, I and the children refers to Isaiah, and to those who can personally hear his voice, and they will stand as a witness and testify of God's plan. These people will include The 144 that we commonly speak of, and they will dwell with Yahweh of armies in his Zion-like communities that the servant has set up. The the example of the 144,000 that are commonly speaking of are just one small group or one small entity of this
0: group that gathers and works for God. That's also in the book of Revelation, correct? The 144,000? it is let's go to verses 19 through 22 when they tell you quote consult with those who have familiar spirits and with the wizards who chirp and who mutter close quote shouldn't a people consult with their god should they consult the dead on behalf of the living turn to the law and to the covenant if they don't speak according to this word surely there is no mourning for them and that's They will pass through it, very distressed and hungry, and it will happen that when they are hungry, they will worry and curse by their king and by their God. They will turn their faces upward and look to the earth and see distress, darkness, and the gloom of anguish. They will be driven into thick darkness.
1: This time the invasion comes, many people will not have a relationship with God to guide them. They suddenly want to hear what God has in store for them to protect them. Instead, they turn to mediums and spiritualists that speak to the dead. God says, why do you seek advice from the dead when you can turn to the scriptures? This turning to mediums and soothsayers happens when they are hungry and out of work. No matter where they look, they see distress and gloom. If they don't turn their hearts and minds to God they will be driven further into darkness and despair until at one point they will turn back to God and seek to
0: hear his voice. All right, folks, that concludes the reading of Isaiah 8 and the notes that Sean has. I'd like to follow up with some questions and maybe even some summaries. The first thing I'd like to discuss is this uh, idea of the servant, which you have brought up several times in several podcasts, this latter-day servant. And is that the same person now as the Yahweh of armies that is described in this chapter?
1: Yeah, as uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls like to refer to him as Yahweh of armies. Um, You know, in other translations and things, they call him the servant and stuff that is empowered. That's one contrast that I think really helps us in decoding what Isaiah is saying by understanding this.
0: All right. And then you referred to the to this servant being hidden until an appointed time when he uh, reveals his identity to the world. I wanted to that made me think of a verse in Doctrine and Covenant, section eighty-six, verse verses eight through ten. Therefore, thus saith the Lord unto you, with whom the priesthood hath continued through the lineage of your fathers. For ye are lawful heirs according to the flesh and have been hid from the world with Christ in God. Therefore your life and the priesthood have remained, and must needs remain through you and your lineage until the restoration of all things spoken of by the mouths of all the holy prophets since the world began. So to me, when I heard you say that, I thought of these verses because there are heirs to the priesthood that are going to remain hidden until the restoration of all things. Which has been spoken of by the holy prophets since the world began. And we're still not at the fullness. The brethren have made it very clear in recent years, especially because it's made me stand up and take note that the restoration is unfolding, that it continues to unfold. And even as recently as the first year that President Nelson took the office of the first of the president in the first presidency, he said that we're just at the beginning of right the uh dispensation the beginning of the restoration which really i don't think many members of the church of jesus christ are thinking in that term in those terms because we've seen so much already a foundation laid that maybe we think we're just filling in some of the details but in reality the biggest part of the story is still coming
1: you know it's interesting as you refer to that verse and everything when you think back about um Visions of Glory in that conference in which um, on the conference, many people will see Adam there. They see Joseph Smith. They see uh, the Savior there. They see others, and yet some of them don't. And I know that that's true for my vision and everything, and, and I feel like he does a better job of explaining it there. But we are also going to see men rise up on this continent and the other continent and they will have the true priesthood of the Levites and have that line down into Aaron and so forth for the rightful ones that will stand up. And we will be a little bit surprised, I think, when we see these men come step forward and have the kind of a, this power revealed of who they are and the power of this direct lineage of the priesthood.
0: Well, all I can say is when I read the scriptures, it's pretty clear from these verses, that there's some type of priesthood that is lineal in nature, comes through lineage. I know we have the Aaronic Priesthood, and there are verses in the Doctrine and Covenants that talk about direct, literal descendants of Aaron being able to be serving in the place of a bishop, should they be found. But I think there's more to this. Maybe sometime we can talk more about that. I wanted to talk about this uh, seven year period also, that the midpoint is the three and a half years. And you talked about the first three and a half years being a time of
1: testing of the saints to see if they really will hold true and faithful. Because what if you were to get part way down the road and all of a sudden you're cussing God and cursing God for your plight and everything? Are you really one of the true followers if you will turn and start cussing him for your financial mess or for the your family getting sick or something else? He wants to, you know, he's going to shake it out of this
0: to see where our faults really are. So this made me think of the writing on the wall yeah. that Daniel interprets. Uh, Daniel chapter 5. Let's start with verse t- 24. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written Mene Mene Takel Eupharsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. I think that could probably apply to many kingdoms, especially the ones on the chosen unchosen land. Next, Tekel. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. So we see here, this there's this weighing that I think you're describing that was occurring at this time as well. And then finally, the uh, Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So a kingdom divided, a kingdom invaded. This is, of course, And I found it interesting that Isaiah was talking so much, not only about the Northern kingdom, he talked about the divided kingdoms of the house of Israel, which is Ephraim or Israel to the North and then Judah to the South. And he talked about both of them eventually being invaded and, and taken over. So I found I just, those words of the weighing the Lord, giving an opportunity being weighed. And then the judgment comes if they're found weight, if they're found, um, wanting
1: uh, i've been studying egyptian things quite a bit especially about the weighing of the heart in that scene of judgment from the egyptians and in that weighing uh maat maat places a feather from her head upon one side of the scale and then she put the heart of the person is put on the other side and they see what is lacking by the weight of it And so in this scene, Mott represents uh, like a heavenly mother, and the other one represents our wives, or in some cases, uh, they also, other translations talk about this being, what light and knowledge did we have against what we did in this life? So every the judgment and everything is not what we expect typically. It's a different balance than what we in our minds have come up
0: with. Thank you. The next thing that came up in my mind is when you read verses 5 through 8, and then you described about the plot going on and allowing the king of Assyria to, to conduct an invasion. Now, this made me think about the description that Nephi provides while he's on his angelic tour. I think it's after he sees the tree of life and the whole thing that his father saw he goes on to see <clears throat> a people coming to the americas which i believe is the pilgrims and uh we have to remember at least from the point of view of members of the church of jesus christ the latter day saints that the book of mormon describes uh what i know there's there's dna issues and i'm not trying to <clears throat> weigh, uh wade into all of that information but but there is a description in the Book of Mormon about these people coming over <clears throat> and scattering the house of Israel. And uh, we saw that the descendants of the immigrants, <clears throat> or should I say, emigrants, those who followed after the pilgrims, they treated the uh, Native Americans very, very poorly and they were scattered. And the Lord did permit it, it did happen. and it doesn't mean that those who did it were righteous any more than the king of Assyria was righteous, but it did fulfill part of the promise or part of the cursing that Israel would be scattered, and uh, that apparently meant not just northern and southern kingdoms, but those who emanated out of those kingdoms. Mm -hmm. Do you have any disagreement with that, Sean, or does that sound about right?
1: It, it sounds right, but I want to go back just for a second in the scene of Nephi's dream where' they're crossing the river you know where they're having to the fog is so thick and they're holding on to that rod and yet they're being haunted by the world. that's essentially the first three and a half year period of going through trying to get to the other side that you're being tried in every way to see if you're true and faithful in all things according to
0: what you've been taught. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. All right, let's continue on here. So we get again to this idea or prophecy about invasion in the latter days, similar to what happened at the time of Israel and then later Judah. Not a pleasant picture, but once the Lord has decreed and given the power to this king of Assyria, there's really no, there's no chance here. Uh, they may think that God is with them, uh, that means meaning the king of Assyria, but uh, definitely without God's protection. We just have so many examples of this in the Book of Mormon, and in the Old Testament, where the Lord withdraws His uh, protection. We might, we might remember when the children of Israel would go to war initially. What would they bring to the to the battle? <clears throat> Europe, they brought the ark of the covenant with them, right?
1: Yeah. The one thing I'd like to but bring did up. It
0: make, but did it make a difference later when they were unrighteous? It didn't matter if it was there or not. Right. They didn't win. It wasn't the object. It was the faith and the uh, that it that it roused in people
1: what it taught them in their minds. The one thing I'd like to bring up here that I think I don't want to overlook is that when the servant stands up until the time the king of Assyria. Comes in, he will ask the people to gather, and that time period from about when he stands up will be like three to four months of advance. And many people will be reluctant to follow his advice, saying, "No, we can recover, we can turn around, we can, we it's not that bad yet," um, and so forth. Um, they can see the writing on the wall and everything, but they still disbelieve that it could happen to them. And so there'll be many that gather, but then when the King of Assyria finally invades, then so many more are awakened, and they flock to try to, oh my gosh, what that fellow was saying on TV, or what I heard was right, and we've got to get to safety, and they have little left to take with them, and what they could just put in their cars, and they try to flee to come to safety as
0: this invasion starts. Well, we're still talking about invasion, which is why we don't like chapters 7 and 8. <laughs> Chapter 9. Okay. Hold on one second here. To
1: mention it. i like to mention in here how we're seeing the big division. How we're seeing a large dividing right here at this midpoint. Here we have the righteous and those that can hear God going one way and the wicked staying over here and the God humbling these others that haven't heard his voice, I mean, the beautiful thing is that he's giving them the opportunity to repent, use the atonement, and come back to him. And that's the whole thing through all of this, no matter how dark it gets, if you want to repent whilst yet in this life, there's this opportunity to turn
0: back. It's so good the Lord continues to offer an olive branch to us to repent and and offer protection, if we will. The fact that the Yahweh of armies was a person, I thought was illustrated well in verses 16 through 18, when it says Yahweh of armies, who dwells in Mount Zion? So and I thought that helped us to identify it was a person.
1: And this Zion is really um, areas that he has dedicated. It's not like one particular Um, spot, it's uh, as Joe Smith indicated and stuff, that they will hide in the Rockies. And as I've seen further, I keep calling it uh, the inner valleys, because they're so protected by the mountains and the resources that they're available there and everything. And uh, then as the Yahweh of Armies blesses it and sanctifies it for this, there's great protection. Wow. The greatest protection actually comes from the people themselves as they live Christ-like principles and the the energy that comes off of them from treating each other Christ-like, from praying together, from bonding together, from acting this way, that's the greatest protection of all right there.
0: It's very, very similar to what we read in Visions of Glory and other accounts, very similar to, to those observations that uh people that are like-minded will get together those that aren't like-minded will move on to other groups uh and that uh as we go through this refinement period it's almost like it's almost like between telestial and terrestrial we go through a gradual change i mean there are there are cataclysmic events Mm the earth and people uh what's going to go on it is there are cataclysmic things but actual changing is is like slight is by degree as opposed to when the earth goes from a terrestrial to a celestial the way that john the revelator describes it it seems like it's like the earth passes away and then it comes back and it's this ball of glass is what it looks like to the to the observer and and also the fire when it when the fire finally burns it it uh the the wicked are burned and then it goes away and the earth comes back. So this is interesting to me that we have this gradual change uh, compared with what we see in other accounts.
1: The other thing that's kind of confusing is we get some of the things that John's saying a little messed up because the earth doesn't actually turn to glass until the end of the millennium when we have the very final battle and the very final thing when Lucifer and those that chose to go with him and still because I still think there's an opportunity for some of them to change their hearts and turn around, and that's the whole big thing. But uh, that very final judgment, that very final battle at the end of a thousand years is the point at which the earth turns to a glass ball, similar to what I saw when I was taken back to look at that, uh, the plan of salvation or the book of life, as I sometimes refer to it, on that marble pedestal. We were standing on a glass ball, it seemed to be
0: as we walked out there to look at it i'm resisting the temptation to ask about glass a glass ball but i'm going to resist today <laughs> we'll, we'll maybe get into that some other time um the only thing i wanted to i i think correct sean or at least correct for our listeners so they're not confused is that when you referred to revelation 12 that the woman is the church yes that's absolutely what joseph smith translation said but the revelation 12 the current version says that she is fed in the wilderness for 2363 score days and Joseph changed it to years. It and, to yeah. And so uh I don't that doesn't mean the woman isn't there for uh three and a half years, but there's another meaning that Joseph has, I think, adding to it, which uh I've pondered a lot about. I've read other authors just kind of gloss over the the word change. So I don't think it negates the three and a half years, but there's also something going on. If you know where to count from, what to include, I'm going to to give a little hint about my own opinion about this. Uh, Just one of the two parts. And that is that I believe that the 1,203 score years includes the millennium. So we only have to account for 203 score years from some starting point to some ending point that's my opinion uh because and as, mm-hmm. as we visited before
1: i solidly believe this is a template in the book of revelations and others for the turning of a dispensation and having a new dispensation of course we're entering into the millennium which is a dispensation of itself but um i definitely saw people that uh, the servant had gathered together, preparing themselves to talk with Christ face-to-face while yet having a body being fed, not only spiritually, but physically, and then walking towards him to talk with him face-to-face. So, um, you know, I knew, I agree with you on the years, but I also see that um, preparing that three and a half years to, Meet the Savior face to face and be in His presence, clearly have Him minister and talk to each one of us as He did in the Book of Mormon, um, is part of that also, and part of the building up or building up of Zion to see Him again.
0: We could spend a whole podcast talking about the seven years and the midpoint because it's very clear that the, that seven year period does exist. We have references to time, times, and half a time. which is three and a half. We have other references to uh, X number of months, X number of days, it all add up to three and a half. We have the 70 weeks of Daniel and we can account for 69 of those weeks. I'm going to talk about that for a minute. I feel like I should just mention that. And and again, you feel free to correct me with your understanding, but this is what I have uh, put together. So, The six, the seventy weeks of Daniel is the time it's going to take for the Lord to complete His uh, this work. Let's say, and I think that members of my church make the mistake of confusing our calendar of our timeline with the Jewish calendar, because the the Old Testament was written by Jewish prophets, the New Testament was written by Jewish converts who became prophets also had the gift of prophecy. They were just uh, apostles of Jesus Christ. They were taught for 40 days. They had a lot of inside information from the Savior. And there's a timeline built into that Bible, I believe. And it has to do, and it ties into, a stopping and starting of their timeline, which is the temple in the old Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in Israel. And I believe that once the temple was destroyed in AD 70, uh, that the clock stopped again and this the clock that's going to count that last week in the uh, seven days is seven years that clock doesn't start up again until the temple in jerusalem is built i don't know where the temple is going to go i don't there's lots of people talking about that to me that's not the important point there isn't a temple there a jewish temple there that starts the clock yet but once that gets built in my opinion that's when this final seven years begins to tick off. That's when there's a deal made with a, I guess, a world leader, world power, that they can preach there, and the middle of that is taken away.
1: As we talked in um, last,
0: uh, the last podcast, we were
1: talking about King Ahaz's uh, he basically desecrated the altar by tearing down the altars in the temple and putting statues of Baal there. And uh, that, you know, when we call the desecration uh, that Daniel speaks about and setting the timeline for the future, because there's many points at what we reset the clock, so to speak, by these events, the desecration of abominations. And so we need to the look at The abomination for- of desolation. Yes, I'm glad you corrected me. Um, that somehow this altar, which everybody's so excited about, will be used for evil, or they will sacrifice a human upon this, which would desecrate that altar. It would not be good, but it'll occur with the invasion, which will happen after the United States is invaded, as we can see this week in the scripture.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up, because last time when you were reading about Ahaz breaking down the altars and installing false gods i was thinking exactly about what would happen in the temple in jerusalem in the future uh it's a type and a shadow of what's going to happen and i have to say it sounds so outrageous for a king of israel to do that right, right. to to desecrate something so holy to the people that he'd get away with it uh, today, if you'd ask me in my younger years, do I ever would I ever foresee someone walking into a temple and desecrating it in that way? I, I couldn't imagine it, let alone a world leader, a respected person, any world leader or or government leader doing that. I couldn't I couldn't picture it today. It's scary how easy it is to picture that happening today. No problem, right. no problem. Someone in power could, would, could easily do those kind of things. It's happening. Other things like that are happening right now.
1: I think we need to think anciently, too, because what we think of as a temple and all this great work and everything in the early days, I mean, like even in Abraham's time, before they had buildings and stuff, they just set up an altar. Or even with Adam, he stacked some stones together. Even in the Book of Mormon, when they couldn't erect something, they stacked some stones together on a felt that they very was very spiritual, a primordial mound of the earth, and they put up like skins around it and things to be able to worship, to have the Father make their covenants. It was more important to have a place to kneel and a quiet place away from the world to make a covenant. So to have a big grand building and then have it At this future point, we may not see that. Mm. I think we may just see an altar there and a special primordial
0: mound, which we can talk about primordial mounds later on. (laughs) Okay, sounds good. (laughs) Do you have anything else that you'd like to add to your understanding of the book of Isaiah, chapter 8?
1: I just, we can see and hear the tide turning and getting ready for chapter 9 in this wave. And then as we go past 10 and so forth, we're going to start to see this little more focused pictures of these time zones and time periods, which will amount to like a month or less uh, at times. Got 66 chapters to cover.
0: (laughs) Well, we're (laughs) slowly plotting through them, aren't
1: we? (laughs) Yeah. That's almost nine. Let's see if we divide seven into 66, you know, we're going to have eight or nine chapters just focused on each year. It's a lot to think about.
0: I know nine times seven is 63. So that's. That's uh if that helps at all. Yeah. So let's uh, close this out. But I do want to mention one thing. As we leave today. I went ahead and secured a website name. Visionofzion.org. And on that website. I will be able to. Provide the complete show notes. or So. Beginning uh, today or tomorrow, I'm going to start to post the show notes of the book of Isaiah chapters that Sean has prepared, and you can download them. Eventually, Sean's going to put them into a booklet form so you can download the entire, all the notes of the book of Isaiah. Is that correct, Sean? That's correct. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is Vision of Zion. Go ahead, Sean.
1: Thank you, Greg.
0: All right. Take care, everybody.